Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, my name is Peng Fei Zhao, and this is New Books in Education. Today I will be talking with Karen Ross on her new book, Youth Encounter Programs in Israel, Pedagogy, Identity, and Social Change, newly published by Syracuse University Press in October 2017. Karen Ross is an assistant professor of conflict resolution, human security, and global governance at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Her new book we are going to talk about in a minute presents a very solid and thoughtful study about the youth encounter peace education programs in Israel. It has powerfully and insightfully shown us how these peace education programs have made long-term positive and profound impacts on their adolescent participants while they grew into mature adults. I'm here today to talk with Karen Ross about her new book, Youth Encounter Programs in Israel, Pedagogy, Identity, and Social Change. Hello, Karen. Good morning, Pang Fei. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you very much for joining New Books in Education. And also, congratulations on writing such an engaging and powerful book. Thank you so much, Pang Fei. I'm really happy to be here this morning. Is this your first book? It is my first book. Hopefully not the last one. Yeah. How did you feel when you first saw the printed copy of the book? Oh, wow. Well, um, it's pretty amazing after so much time and so much energy invested into the process to be able to hold it in your hand and see your name on the front, on the cover. I felt it still feels a little bit... um, Surreal, I think, is the word that I've been using, but but it feels very good. And I'm really happy to have the book in print and to share it with, um, you know, the organizations that I've worked with and with uh, all of the people who've been so supportive uh, in the process of me writing it and getting it out to print. Yeah, it must be very exciting. It is. And, and that's a really good word for it. Too. <laughs> More than just- yeah. Oh, I totally understand why you say it is surreal because like you have put so much energy and so much efforts into it and now it is there. All the efforts came into a fruition in this book, you know, it must be a very exciting moment. I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it was a, it's been a quite a long process too. So I'm, I'm very happy to finally um, have it in print and uh, out into the world. Yeah, so this is really the time to pause and look back. Let's start our conversation by giving our audience some background about your intellectual trajectory. How did you come to the study of conflict resolution and peace education? Oh, wow. Um, well, 
So um, to give you a little bit of background, it requires me to give you a little bit more background about myself. Um, so I was born in Israel um, and an Israeli citizen, and but also uh, grew up largely in the United States. So um, when I was a child and then also as a, a young adult and then as an adult, I went back and forth between the United States and Israel um, fairly regularly. And uh, really, I think what spurred my interest in this field was realizing probably when I was a teenager just how different my experiences were in both places. So um, in the United States, I grew up in a town that was very diverse racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. Um, I, I went to school uh, from, you know, elementary through high school with kids from all different backgrounds um, who spoke different languages at home, who had different experiences, cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and so forth. Um, and in contrast, when I was in Israel, I had a very different experience. So my first year of high school I spent in Israel, my in ninth grade, I guess, when I was about 14, I was living in Jerusalem, which is a very diverse city also, certainly from a religious perspective, a very diverse city. Um, but I realized, I think at that point, I was old enough to really understand that the experience I had was um, not really uh, an opportunity to meet individuals from all of those diverse backgrounds. And the school that I went to was all Jewish students um, because of the way the school system, the education system is structured in Israel. Um, Jewish and Arab or Palestinian citizens um, do not uh, go to school together. Um, so uh, I realized at that point um, how different those two experiences were, and it led me to uh, investigate more deeply the history of Israel's founding and um, the history of the conflict in Israel uh, between Jews and Palestinians, and then also um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more broadly. Um, and it became something that I was, you know, really interested in. I remember even before I started my university studies, applying for scholarships and applying for university entrance and having to write personal statements and writing that I was interested in this issue and in trying to somehow um, be involved with peace building or addressing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and, you know, I've been involved with it in different ways since then, but I've, I've stayed on the same trajectory more or less. Um, so that's, that was kind of the start for um, how I got interested in this field. Um, and, uh, you know, there, over the years, I've been involved in different ways. Um, when I was a um, student doing my master's degree, I uh, spent some time writing curricula for organizations that were involved with peace education. Um, I've been very involved in doing dialogue work, um, not only between Jews and Palestinians, but also between Jews and Palestinians, um, and in facilitating dialogue uh, and training facilitators. Um, and it's, you know, something that I've been really interested in from a professional standpoint and as a practitioner in the field, 
Um, and uh, at a certain point, I really started to get interested in this question of, well, how do we know whether these kinds of programs are making a difference? And what does that difference look like? And how could we uh, try to understand that from a kind of more systematic point of view. Um, and that was really led me, really what led me, I mean, first to my graduate studies, uh, my doctoral studies, um, and then ultimately to writing this book, uh, which explores some of these questions about how we know um, whether peace education programs and counter programs uh, make a difference uh, for participants and more broadly and, and, and what that might look like. Well, it really sounds a um, long intellectual journey, and it really sounds like a long-term uh, pursuit of peace education. So, um, like, one thing really stood out for me when I read the book is that you wrote, you also joined the army when you were in Israel. That was a very different uh life trajectory compared with engaging in peace education programs and writing curriculums, um, engaging in dialogues. So what did you do in the army? Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about that? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So, so in a way it is really different. Um, in some ways, I think it's actually uh, fits into the same trajectory in a little bit of a more uh, roundabout way. So um, as I mentioned, I was born in Israel. I'm an Israeli citizen. And in Israel, it is mandatory for all Jewish citizens to serve in the military. Um, I, um, when I was um, in university, I was in the university in the United States, um, and I had decided um, at a certain point that I I'd planned to go back to Israel basically permanently um, after finishing my university studies and um, was not uh, was not exempt from military service. I had deferred my military service um, because I was not living in Israel and was studying in the United States, um, but but was not exempt. Um, and I could have gone back to Israel and not served in the army. But at that point, my thought process was twofold. One, I felt that it was important for me as an Israeli citizen going back to live in Israel um, that I do this thing that was mandatory for, for Jewish Israeli citizens. Um, and second, I felt as somebody who at that point already had uh, commitment uh, to peace building um, and conflict resolution work that in a sense, and, and I think in retrospect, this was a fairly naive thought process, but it was my thought process at the time, uh, that it might give me some credibility um, as somebody involved with this work, but who wasn't just, you know, approaching it without having had some, I don't know what the, what the right phrase or term would be, but some, you know, real life experience in, in what was happening in Israel and especially um, understanding the perspective of Jewish Israeli society. Um, so that was my thought process when I went into the army. When I was in the army, I was engaged in educational work. Um, so I was writing, also I was, I was, um, writing curricula I and lesson plans, uh, 
to be shared with soldiers on the base where I was at um, and otherwise organizing educational and, and activities for those soldiers on my base. Um, I had a little bit of this, again, I think maybe somewhat naive perspective that I could try to create change from the inside, right? So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to write about these lessons about minority groups in Israel and, and better understanding difference and, and so forth and so on. Um, I have no idea whether any of those lessons actually made a difference to anybody who was in the army with me, but I have to say also, um, I was in the army in Israel uh, at a very tense period in kind of the Israeli political context. It was um, after the outbreak of what's known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada, the second Intifada, um, which uh, was a period where there was a lot of violence on both sides. Um, and uh, there were a number of military operations that were occurring during that period um, that were, you know, really um, oppressing the Palestinian population. And um, at a certain point, I just felt like I realized that my perspective was not a perspective that was congruent with or could fit with what the military was doing, um, and ultimately I ended my service early. I was released from the military before my service was supposed to be completed. Um, and uh, at that point I returned to the United States. I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do, whether I was going to come back to Israel or stay in the United States or do something entirely different, but uh, I felt like I needed some distance um, to kind of process the whole experience um, and figure out how to uh, maintain my commitment to these, um, you know, these, yeah. what, as you said, is mm -hmm. kind of a long-term pursuit. Right. Um, so, and it indeed uh, triggered a lot of thinking. Yeah, it was a... Uh, it was a very transformative experience. Um, I would not say that it was an entirely pleasant experience by any means, um, but it was, uh, it, as you said, it very much it triggered a lot of thinking for me. Um, and, and I learned also a lot about my, not only about myself, but I learned a lot um, from, from doing that. Now I'll say that, you know, um, now, you know, with more than 15 years um, of space between that experience and today, um, I am certainly not sure I would make the same choices. Um, and in fact, this is something that has kind of come up over time uh, in relation to my work and even in some of the, um, in relation to the research that I did for this book. Uh, but, um, you know, I was a I, I was at a different point in my life then than I am today. Yeah, and yeah, as you as you said, it's a transformative. It triggered a lot of thought, and uh, it also gave you some first-hand experience of what it really looked like in an army and in a politically intense period. So I so yeah, so I think that's. Um, I I really appreciate that you can sharing uh you can share this experience with us, and for that let's turn to your book Youth Encounter Programs in Israel. Um, let's start with 
some of the background information about the Youth Encounter Program in Israel and how you became interested in this topic. So, are the Youth Encounter Programs the main form of peace education in Israel? What are some of the different social movements, activisms about peace?、Um, Peace activism in Israel and peace education.、Uh, so that's a it's an interesting question. So、um, I'll start by maybe talking a little bit about peace activism more generally.、Um, there has been、um, for decades a lot of work being done in Israel、uh, by various peace movements, and I would say that most of these really started after 1967.、Um, The 1967 war that Israel fought、um, with、uh, the countries around it,、um, and this war was a real turning point for Israel.、Um, it was the war during which it occupied、uh, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as well as um, the uh,、um, some other parts,、uh, some other land,、uh, the Golan Heights in the north of Israel. Um, as well as also the Sinai Peninsula, which is now part of Egypt,、uh, Israel returned that land to Egypt、um, as part of the peace treaty there with with the Egyptians.、Um, but it was a、uh, um, a turning point in that suddenly Israel, rather than being this you know small country surrounded by、um, you know the kind of mythology and the Israeli narrative or the Jewish narrative in Israel is this tiny country surrounded by Arab neighbors who wanted to throw Israel into the sea and get rid of it.、Um, in 1967, Israel.、Um, Occupied this land,、um, and、uh, during the during this war,、um, and really、um, became a country that was, you know, the perception of Israel was as a strong country, as a strong military country.、Um, but then the question really became, what was going to happen with this land, right? The West Bank and the Gaza Strip.、Um, and、uh, initially, there were some discussions about kind of strategic settlement. Of certain pieces of that land、uh, for security purposes,、um, very quickly over the certainly within the first decade after 1967,、um, there began a movement to settle that land.、Um, there is a kind of Greater Land of Israel movement,、um, as kind of drawing on biblical narratives of the Jews or the Hebrews、um, occupying all the land.、Um, Uh, that Israel had occupied, and so、um, in that process, you know, there were a lot of questions about what would happen to the Palestinian population,、um, how Israel should deal with the Palestinian population, the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and within Israel,、uh, the development, the initial development of、um, social movement groups that were aiming to end that occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip.、Um, And uh, to uh, address some of those issues. Now, I should say that the situation within Israel between Jewish and Palestinian citizens is a little bit different.、Um, the work that I do, that's related to this book,、um, is all within the state of Israel, right? So these are citizens, Palestinian citizens.、Uh, in they're officially referred to as Israeli Arabs or Arab Israelis by the government. Um, I refer to them as Palestinian citizens or Palestinians because this is how most of them refer to themselves who are involved in my research,、um, and so to honor their 
uh, identity claims as Palestinians, I use that term as well. Um, but I want to distinguish it from Palestinians who live uh, in the West Bank or Gaza Strip or in the Palestinian diaspora. And they are very... Um, so that's kind of the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry? I, I was going to say they are they are very segregated so, segregated from Israel citizens in East... The Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are, yes. I mean, so they are not... Uh, they need special permits to enter into Israel um, and these permits are not very easy to get. Um, so there is certainly um, uh, segregation there. Um, there also within Israel, uh, there is quite a bit of segregation between uh, Jewish and Palestinian citizens. For the most part, um, that segregation um, plays out in housing, where people live, right? So there are um, Jewish villages and towns, Palestinian villages and towns, uh, there's some mixed cities, but even in these mixed cities, often the neighborhoods are segregated from one another. Um, so there are a few places where Jewish and Palestinian citizens uh, will live in, you know, in more, you know, so it's not just one or two um, who are living in, you know, one or two Palestinians who are living in a Jewish neighborhood. But uh, there are some neighborhoods that are mixed, and there is one um village in Israel uh, called uh, Wahata Salam, Neve Shalom, uh, in English, Oasis of Peace. It was established um, as a binational Jewish-Palestinian village, and it is the only one of its kind in Israel. Um, although there are a few, like I said, a few mixed neighborhoods where there is kind of an intentional intention on the part of um, some of the residents, at least, to create uh, space for Jews and Palestinians to live together. So there's segregation in housing or in where people live. And there's also, as I mentioned, segregation in the education system. Uh, there's a separate Arab education sector. Um, so uh, Palestinian students go to school separately from Jewish citizens, except for a few, uh, just five or six uh, schools that are integrated, intentionally integrated, uh, where Jewish and Palestinian kids learn together. Um, and uh, universities, which are integrated, um, but for the most part, uh, you know, uh, Palestinian students are a minority there, um, not only because of, you know, in, numerically in kind of a, uh, um, the sense of what the population percentages are, but also because, um, as you uh, may imagine, um, the resources provided for uh Arab education in Israel are fewer and fewer Palestinian students are able to um, make it into university to score successfully on uh, entrance exams and so forth. So um, there's really, I mean, segregation occurs across the board. Also in employment, uh, a lot of jobs in Israel require security clearance. Security clearance requires military service. Um, Palestinian citizens do not serve in the military, uh, so they are automatically barred from uh, many, many jobs in Israel. So what are the goals for those peace education programs? Is the goal to end the segregation or is the goal to promote encounters? Yeah, so for the most part, the kind of peace education program that I 
I write about, um, yes, the goal is really to provide Jewish and Palestinian youth with an opportunity to um, engage in kind of a positive interactions uh, to develop um, an understanding of one another's perspective. Um, and the, these programs really range in how much uh, in, in how much they focus on kind of developing interpersonal relationships at uh, individual level um, to focusing or emphasizing issues related to societal conflict. Uh, so this is one of the things that I write about um, in the book to some degree. The uh, book is a comparison of two different programs, uh, one that is or has much more or had, it's no longer an active program being implemented, um, program that is focused much more on developing uh, interpersonal relationships, um, developing an understanding of different his, uh, cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, um, and so forth. And the other program, which places a much greater emphasis on helping um, its participants better understand uh, systemic injustices in Israeli history, um, better understand, you know, causes of social inequalities, um, and really trying to develop partnerships between Jews and Palestinians who will then continue to uh, work together or at least support one another in endeavors towards creating a more peaceful and just Israeli society. So what is the central concern of the book by comparing these two programs? So to answer that, I think I need to give you a little bit more context on how these programs have been studied in the past. Um, so I mentioned that I grew interested um, through my practitioner work in this question of whether these programs uh, really make a difference or, or how they might have an impact on their participants. Uh, and this is certainly not the first time this question has been asked, uh, there's been, you know, quite a bit of research on these kinds of programs in Israel and in other places um, where programs have been developed to try to, you know, bring people together and reduce prejudice and so forth. Um, but most of the research that's been done about these programs has taken a very kind of short-term um, and I would say um, narrowly conceptualized approach to understanding impact. So what you will find typically, or at least, um, you know, the, the first couple of decades of this research um, was a lot of uh, questionnaires that were asking um, about changes in attitudes or maybe about things that individuals learned from one another um, from participating in these programs and that we're measuring things like social distance, right? So how willing people are to meet with or spend time with somebody from the other side of the conflict. Um, and a lot of this research was done in the form of pre-test, post-test questionnaires, so measuring change um, over time as a result of these programs. Uh, but, you know, two things that I felt really needed to be addressed to better understand the impact of these programs was one, the change over time not 
over the course of a few months or even a year, but really understanding how these programs potentially fit into the life choices that participants make later on. Um, but also, um, you know, the programs themselves were a little bit of a black box in this research. So participants would respond to a questionnaire before participating. They would respond to the same questionnaire maybe at the very end of the program or a few months down the line. Um, and there wasn't really much discussion at all uh, that I was seeing in a lot of the literature of what was happening in the programs themselves. That is, what kind of things are happening there, what kind of interactions are happening there, what kind of program structure exists that might actually be playing a role in affecting or, you know, shaping the way that participants see that impact. Um, and I, you know, I think there are a range, as I said, of programs that have different emphases that are created and structured in different ways. Um, and I thought it was important to look at that element as well in trying to understand um, change and change over time. So uh, these two programs uh, were programs that have, uh, as I said, quite different approaches uh, in some ways. In other ways, they're very similar. So um, they're among the longest running programs. Both were established in the 1980s and were still continuously operating up through the time when I was initially doing my research um, with them. So uh, more than th one uh, which had been, um, you know, more than 20, both of them more than 20 years, um, and uh, both of them working uh, over a period of at least a year with participants. So rather than a one-time weekend program or even a program over a couple of months, um, participants in these programs really had an opportunity to get to know one another over a longer time period um, and to get to know one another on a weekly basis in these programs, but then also go back home to their families every week and their community and have to, I guess, reconcile some of the differences between what they were experiencing within the organizations during those programs and then what, what they were experiencing back at home. Um, and they worked with more or less the same age group. So I would say in both organizations between about the ages of 13 to 16, 13 to 17. Uh, so it created a basis for comparison. And I will say there are not a lot of organizations that um, have been around long enough to create an opportunity to really get a long-term perspective. Um, so there weren't that many organizations that it was possible for me to work with. Um, and, you know, I was also wanted to make sure that the organization staff itself was interested in these, uh, in these, my questions, right? In these questions about impact, if they thought it could be useful. Uh, so before I started my research, um, I actually spent quite a bit of time, um, speaking with staff, uh, at a number of different organizations to try to get a sense of um, which organizations it would make the most sense to work with from their perspective and mine. And that is how I ended up working with these these two organizations, um, Peace Child Israel and Sadaka Reut. Excuse me. So those are the, um, that's, you know, kind of how I got to that comparison from that perspective. And then, as I mentioned, uh, the two have really different 
cognitive program structures um, and uh, organizational structures. And so that created an opportunity to really look at what are the dynamics of what happens within these programs and how it could potentially shape participants or affect participants um, in different ways. Yes, and as we can see from the book, the structure of the organizations really made impact on how um, the program shaped the participants of the the adolescent participants uh, of these programs. So from my perspective, one very important contribution of this book is to really carefully think through what it means to say certain peace education program impacts their trainees or their participants. Um, the question of impact sounds to be a methodological question in this context. Would you like to say a little bit more about how you research impact or how you approach impact? So this was something that <laughs> figuring out how to approach this question took quite a bit of time. Um, what I realized as I, um, and I will say that I, this is a lot of how I came to what I wrote about in this book was through some really excellent um, mentorship and support from my uh, advisors and faculty members in my doctoral program at Indiana University um, in the comparative education program and the inquiry methodology program. So um, their uh, insights were invaluable in helping me develop this approach. And I want to just shout out to them <laughs> at this moment to say thank you. Um, but I think, you know, what I realized as I was beginning to develop uh, this, the research that became the basis for this book is that there are a couple of things um, I felt were really important. Um, one is, you know, this question of the impact of these programs was something that could not be explored uh, over just uh, short term, uh, as I said. So, you know, we're talking about these kinds of programs uh, aimed to, um, you know, create opportunities for bettering relationships or maybe uh, contributing to the development of an activist mindset uh, and so forth. And um, the kinds of goals that these programs aim to contribute to are not goals that could be addressed in just a short time. Uh, but uh, much of the research really focused on the short term. So I was trying to understand how I might under, how I might explore this impact uh, over a longer time period um, and you know long, you know there's a lot of discussion about longitudinal studies right so studies where you follow a group of people over a period of months or years or decades depending on the study um, to try to understand um, changes, uh, in their behavior or, or attitudes and so forth. But uh, longitudinal studies are not really realistic for an individual researcher, um, especially uh, not somebody who's just starting out and doesn't have uh, a lot of right. funding. Resources are very important for longitudinal studies. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, that was ruled out very quickly. Um, but, 
you know, I, uh, one thing that as I was doing some reading, uh, not just into um, peace education and conflict resolution work, but uh, methodologically into thinking about how you might explore this, um, I came across some work on life histories, oral histories, um, and, and this really struck me as uh, a, an approach that could be very insightful in terms of understanding from participants themselves who had, part- who had been part of Sadaqa Re'ut and Peace Child Israel programs um, at different points over the organization's history to try to understand from their life stories, from the narratives they told about their lives, um, how they saw these programs and their participation in these programs as shaping, you know, choices that they made later on, the kinds of relationships that they might have, um, their beliefs about peace building, uh, about their own role in peace building and so forth. Um, and so um, as I developed the study, I realized that this could be a very useful approach uh, methodologically, and I also um, have a, a kind of long-standing commitment to research itself as an endeavor that um, should not replicate kind of existing the kind of power dynamics that these programs are trying to change, right? So these are programs that are trying to create opportunities for interactions between Jewish and Palestinian youth in a kind of environment of equality where outside of these organizations um, there is certainly not equality between Jewish and Palestinian citizens Um, and uh, a lot of uh, research not just on these programs but in general um, there is a bit of a tendency in research that occurs in the social sciences to often also reflect some uh, a power dynamic where the researcher makes all the decisions, where the researcher is the one who's always asking the questions um, and uh, holds a lot of power over participants in the research, at least insofar as it relates to the data um, and to the research process. So I wanted to try to approach this study also in a way that um, minimized some of those power imbalance that, excuse me, power imbalances and um, uh, a life history approach, uh, you know, and trying to understand the stories of my participants, I thought uh, was also one way to do that um, in the sense that um, I was not really um, in a position of sitting down with my participants and asking them a list of questions that they responded to. Uh, but really trying to understand from their perspective what they felt was important to tell uh, about their lives and about how their participation in Peace Child or Sadaqa programs fit into their lives. Um, and it was these uh, discussions were much more conversational, really, um, than other interviews that uh, I might have done or that I've done in other contexts. Uh, and in fact... Um, there were a lot of conversations that took place where I was asked questions by my participants as well, uh, and in some cases that made me feel very vulnerable as well. So I was um, 
it was important to me to, to try to approach the research in that way as well. Um, now, you know, you had asked about impact, Peng Fei. So I, so I just want to say, um, I am in a sense in this book, really trying to reclaim the use of the word impact for this kind of research. Uh, the term has been very narrowly used in terms of trying to understand uh, how causal relationships between, say, participation in some sort of endeavor and uh, the change that results uh, from it um, and is almost almost exclusively, not entirely, but almost exclusively limited to discussion of um, research that occurs using uh, experimental designs where there's an opportunity to really try to, um, you know, uh, control for almost every other factor that might be uh, affecting participants. Um, but I personally feel that the term uh, deserves a much broader understanding, broader look. Uh, and so my book is, in a sense, as I said, trying to reclaim the word for uh, broader usage in the methodological literature. That sounds very interesting. And I, I of course, uh, looking forward, look forward to hearing more about Yao Xiao's um, impact. But I also want to uh, invite you to tell us more, a little bit more in detail about how you implemented your research, like uh, how long it took for you to collect your data, what kind of data you have collected, and what kind of interview you did with um, how many research participants. Yeah, okay. So, um, well, I collected my data. Um, I spent about 10 months in Israel in 2010 and 2011. So from August through May of the following year. And then again, I went back the following spring for about another month. Um, so about 11 months in total. Um, and when I was there, I spent a lot of time basically with uh, both organizations, initially meeting with staff to try to get a sense of um, how I might contact former participants um, and also interviewing staff and board members um, and former board members about the organizations, about their structure, their programmatic approach, and so on. Um, and uh, over the course of that year, I interviewed, I think, I think it was a, a something like 103 interviews that I did all together. Um, uh, most of them were interviews with former participants from both organizations. So, you know, either former participants in Peace Child Israel programs or participants in Sadaq al programs. Um, and uh, I would, in these interviews, essentially, um, you know, sit down with my participants uh, and start off and say, okay, so, I mean, they knew that I was, I was uh, in contact with them through um, some, uh, 
they'd, I'd gotten their names either through the organizations themselves or through other participants. So they knew that I had some connection to and was interested in these organizations. But um, the interviews were really, as I said, an opportunity for them to talk to me about their lives. And I would start my interviews by asking them just that, you know, tell me about your life. Um, and the interviews ranged from, you know, there were some people who um, I spoke with for 45 minutes and a couple of people that I spoke to for two and a half hours, more than one person who I spent more than one interview, more than one afternoon with. Um, so I would just, you know, listen to them uh, telling me about their lives, about uh, their childhood, their family, um, their, and then of course they, many of them spent a lot of time speaking about their experiences within Sadaq uh, or Peace Child Programs, um, and then uh, the time period following it. Um, so I, this was about, uh, I would say about three quarters of my interviews were these life history interviews with former participants. Uh, the rest of the interviews were uh, with, as I said, organizations, staff, board members, facilitators, etc., um, individuals who could give me a better sense of how the programs worked, um, how they might have changed over time um, historically, and what the areas of emphasis were. Uh, and in addition to those interviews, I, I was an observer in groups that were implemented by both organizations both organizations during the year that I was there. Um, so each week I would attend the meeting of one Sadaq Ut group and one Peace Child Israel group. Um, and I also attended some staff meetings and weekend retreats that were held for groups that were, you know, multiple groups that met all together um, and various other kinds of organizational um initiatives that took place. I remember, for example, Sadaq Ut was, um, at the time when I was there, was, you know, kind of dealing with, grappling with this question of what Jewish-Palestinian partnership meant and what it should look like and what it looked like in the context of Sadaq Ut. And so they had kind of an one, uh, I think it was just one day, a big open meeting where they invited former participants, former staff members, anybody who was interested to be a part of this conversation. And I was uh, a part of that as well, not so much as a participant in the conversation as um, an observer of it. Uh, but I, you know, these opportunities to observe what was happening in the organization were uh, obviously also a tremendous learning experience for me and gave me an opportunity to um, get to know people in the organization and, and, and to try to find ways to uh, as much as possible, um, you know, do something in return for uh, everything that I was receiving from them. Yeah. And about the interviews, I, I've read some of the excerpts from the interviews that you put into your book. And I think they are wonderful excerpts and really help me understand the research, your research participants' perspectives. So, uh, maybe if you have the book with you, maybe we can read one or two testimonies from your research participants about how the programs have impact, um, have influenced their life. 
Oh, boy. Well, I have the book in front of me. Um, the whole book is kind of a testimony of how these programs influence their life. So I'm wondering um, what I could read. Um, maybe from the chat, maybe from chapter three, the um, horizon of worldviews. All right. So, so let me give a little bit of context about this chapter. Um, or maybe before I read, I could talk a little bit in general about the areas that I focused on in the book. Is that, would that be okay, Pangfei? Um, to, to give a little context? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you just, uh, yeah, give us a little bit of context and then maybe share one or two, um, interview transcript, okay. interview transcript excerpts for sure. us. Okay. Yeah. So, mm. so, um, in the book, I talk about the, about impact in three different ways. Um, I talk about the way that participants, um, were shaped in how they think about the potential for social change in Israel. Uh, so this is what, uh, Pangfei, you refer to as worldview horizons. Um, the idea here was that through these really in-depth interviews where um, participants were narrating their lives as a whole, I was able to get a sense of not just, you know, the in the more, I would say, um, explicit um, kinds of change that came out of uh, their participation, like how they felt about, um, you know, other individuals in the group or something, but uh, at a much deeper level, um, their beliefs about creating social change in the Israeli context and how that might be possible. Um, so that's one of the three chapters. And the other two chapters, um, one actually kind of builds on that Worldview Horizon chapter to look at the way that participants then engaged in social change. And, and many of them, not all, but many continue to be active in trying to transform Israeli society in different ways, um, either through other Jewish-Palestinian endeavors or through um, uh, addressing issues in the Palestinian community or um, addressing, uh, you know, kind, uh, issues related to the refugee uh issue of refugees in Israel, um, and so on, um, and how they uh, attributed or didn't attribute that activism to their participation in Sadaqa Re'ut and Peace Child Israel. Um, and then the final chapter looks at the narratives of participants um, uh, in relation to kind of dominant discourse in Israeli society, both Jewish and Palestinian societies, um, about the conflict and about the relationship between uh, Jews and Palestinians and so forth. Um, so I was looking at the narratives that came out during the interviews and how these narratives were reflective of or maybe challenged or um, raised some questions about uh, these, these, what some people have referred to as master narratives um, about the Jewish-Palestinian conflict on both sides and how these narratives, also the personal narratives, were things that were shaped by um, participation in Peace Child Israel and Sadaqa Re'ut. So really through my research, I took an approach that was trying to understand much 
more deeply also what impact might look like in terms of these um, belief systems. Uh, so, you know, instead of looking just at uh, change, as I said, at a kind of more explicit or superficial level, um, trying to understand how um, more deeply held beliefs may change as a result of participation and encounters. And then a broader uh, approach to addressing this question of impact by really looking at the change over a much longer period of time. And in particular, in relation to um, the way individuals spoke about their continued participation in peace building and social change endeavors. Um, so those were the kind of the three areas that I talk about in the book. Um, and Pangfei, you asked me um, about uh, maybe reading an excerpt from the uh, Worldview Horizons chapter. So this was uh, um, the chapter where I was looking um, at how participation in Peace Child and Sadaka Reut um, shape the way that individuals understand um, or believe in the potential for social change. Um, and I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from an uh, interviewee who I, who I call Arif in the book. Um, his, that's not his real name, but uh, that's the name that I use. Um, uh, you know, I use pseudonyms for everyone in the book. Um, and I'll just say a little bit about Arif. He is a Palestinian citizen um, and actually someone who uh, in some ways um, I would say was not entirely positively transformed <laughs> over the course of his life. Um, he had very, and the story I tell here is he had very, very positive experience in Sadaka Reut um, and uh, really developed uh, strong beliefs for, for change, um, but as a Palestinian also experienced a tremendous amount of uh, discrimination, both personally and kind of as part of the Palestinian community as a whole, um, and this was something that uh, shaped him as well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's not a story of uh, someone who participated in this program and then um, became fully enamored with uh, uh, positive possibilities for change. Uh, but he did have almost only good things to say about his experience in Sadaka Reut, uh, or he called it uh, Reut Sadaka in his interview. Um, and, and one of the things that he spoke about that I, I speak about in this chapter um, is the importance of creating interpersonal connections um, and, uh, you know, uh, creating opportunities for relationships as part of the opportunity to create change in societal in Israeli society as a whole, um, and so so this is a just a short excerpt that uh, he uh, where he was highlighting this kind of the importance of the relationships uh, and the opportunities for relationships created through Sedakarut. He said, "I believe in bringing together Jews and Arabs to speak, so that each one can express what is sitting on his heart, can express his pain." And that is the only way we will be able to speak about peace and coexistence the way we need to. Only in this way. But if I don't meet any Jews, if I only hear about and think about Jews, and Jews the same thing about me as a Palestinian, then we will constantly be fearful and will live constantly under stress. But why should we do that? Why not meet and live in coexistence together? We have to live here in this place together, no choice. 
There is the Palestinian nation and there are the Jews. I was born into and I live here in the state of Israel along with the Jews. That's the situation. How we need to live in that situation is something we need to decide. And Raut Sadaka is very much engaged in furthering this idea of Jews and Arabs living here in partnership and coexistence in peace. Um, and, and I'm going to read one other short excerpt um, about how he specifically spoke about Raut Sadaka in that way. Uh, he said that uh, Raut Sadaka simply gives you the feeling that it's a movement, true, but it's really a country within a country. It's like a little autonomous space, Raut Sadaka, that you live in, and there are Jews and Arabs, and it's good, it's nice, it's great. It's meeting people, speaking, laughing, speaking about politics, but overall living a pleasant life together. That is really what Reut gave me, and I feel it, and it's something I feel really good about, to live this life that's good. And it's possible to change. It's really possible to change. It's possible that things can be different from what they are. Wow. That's really powerful. That's really gave me hope to think of... Uh, human beings as in general to be able to live together peacefully, to live together happily. And yeah, so so that's why I feel it's very important. And I really would like to share with our audience the um, testimonies from the Book and I agree with you. The entire book is about those testimonies about how uh, powerful the peace education programs have made positive impact on the their participants. So maybe uh, now we can take some time to talk more about the uh, organizational and pedagogical differences of the two programs and how they influence your research participants differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so I spoke a little bit before about how the organizations are similar, um, that they meet each week, that they meet over the course of at least a year, um, and that the participants are around the same age. Um, but Peace Child and Sedakaraut were really different also in a few, I think, and as I discuss in the book, critical ways for how they shape participants. Um, so one difference is that Peace Child was a theater organization. Uh, it used theater as a tool for bringing together participants, Jewish and Palestinian participants, um, and this is fairly common in encounter programs in Israel, programs that use theater or music or sports or some other, the circus, um, as a way of uh, creating an opportunity for Jewish and Palestinian young people to meet and interact and do something together. And in that sense, um, and this is also based on, um, you know, kind of uh, educational and psychological ecological theory about bringing groups together, um, it thus creates opportunity for them to, you know, develop an identity, a shared identity as members of this group. Um, so Peace Child used that approach um, with uh, theater, um, but it was not uh, an approach that really focused too much directly on the conflict. So I mentioned that I observed groups over the course of the year. Uh, in Peace Child, there was not a lot of attention given to really the root issues in the conflict. Um, 
it's not that the conflict didn't come up because it did in a variety of different ways, uh, but it wasn't the focus of what was happening. The focus was on trying to create a, um, you know, a theater group that would perform. They were working on a Hebrew Arabic adaptation of West Side Story. Um, which is also, of course, about two groups in conflict, although in a very different setting, uh, in New York City in the, in the 1960s or 70s. Um, so, and that was an intentional, right, to focus on some sort of conflict, but not to focus directly on the Jewish-Palestinian conflict. Um, and, uh, so this was the approach that they took, um, but, uh, in contrast, Sadaka Reut, uh, place much more emphasis on the conflict itself. Uh, so, and not just on the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, but on helping participants through the weekly meetings, through discussions that happened to better understand um, issues around uh, power and societal injustices and, and, and so forth and so on. The group that I observed in Sedaka Reut was actually a photography group. So, uh, they were using photography as a way of, uh, kind of, I would say, um, uh, creating an opportunity to look through a critical lens at Israeli society. And I used the lens, word lens intentionally there. Um, the group was actually, uh, the groups in Sedaka Reut were, um, on a weekly basis when they met, did not meet as joint Jewish-Palestinian groups. They met about monthly um, as uh, in, like, regional events, but the weekly meetings were separate. Um, and the reason for this was part of Sedaka Reut's, uh, its own kind of theory of change that it's developed and pedagogical, pedagogical approach. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, a belief that really this work in individual groups, um, to understand issues of identity, to understand, um, one's own background and where somebody comes from and issues within the Jewish community separately from the Palestinian community, um, that that's a really important basis for then better understanding uh, the Jewish-Palestinian conflict and being able to work together in partnership to transform various parts of Israeli society. Um, so the weekly meetings looked very different in that respect, um, but also the content, the emphasis on the meetings was much more about connecting participants' personal experiences to larger um, you know, kind of societal issues. One of the things that I, th I talk about in the book is um, a set of discussions in the Sadaqalit group that I observed about gender inequalities in Israeli society, right? So this is not something that is, uh, it certainly has implications and is related to the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, but um, is also something, uh, gender issues and issues around gender discrimination, certainly not unique to Israeli society, but certainly present there as well. Uh, so this was coming out of... Um, you know, some personal experiences the participants were talking about. Um, and what I discuss in the book is really how these differences shaped participants' later orientation to issues in Israeli society uh, and a desire to uh, engage with them 
So on the whole, um, and this is a little bit of a generalization, of course, but on the whole, Sadaqarut participants uh, tended to be much more active um, in the years following their participation in all kinds of endeavors, uh, kind of social movement endeavors, right? So whether it be addressing gender inequalities or empowering the Palestinian community and so forth. Um, among my Peace Child participants, this was much less the case. Uh, and those who did engage in these kinds of endeavors, I would say the ones who attributed it their um, desire or motivation to continue participating to Peace Child Israel tended to focus much more on things that resembled the kind of approach that Peace Child itself used. So other dialogue groups, um, other opportunities to bring Jewish and Palestinian citizens together to develop interpersonal relationships, um, but not with the same orientation towards changing the status quo at a deeper level. Um, so that was one, I think, really big way in which the organizational differences shaped participants differently. And it was reflected also in the structure of each of the organizations um, where Sadaqarayut, I think, really, really modeled and continues to model. Um, you know, uh, Arif spoke about Sadaqarayut or Raut Sadaqa being a, like a little country within a country. And I think that's true to an extent. It really models or embodies something different than what is seen in society and is in Israeli society more generally, uh, where, uh, there is there are Jewish and pa Palestinian co-directors of the organization, co-facilitators of the groups, co-coordinators of the different programs, um, where Hebrew and Arabic are used and spoken interchangeably in the office, uh, in the programs, um, and where there's a real, a lot of conscious attention given to how the organization itself can reflect the values of what it would like to see in Israeli society. Um, and I did not get that impression so much from Peace Child Israel. Um, the organization was a much more hierarchical organization. It was led by a Jewish director. Um, its board members were primarily Jewish. Um, and so, you know, it as an organization had a little bit more of a orientation that was creating some space for difference uh, from what was happening in Israeli society, but still maintaining the status quo to some degree. Um, and it's a little hard to speak to that in a very direct way, how it, how participants were affected by that. But on the whole, I really feel like that difference made a tremendous, I mean, that was a tremendous difference in terms of, you know, how participants saw the organizations and the potential for change that, uh, you know, what might result in Israeli society, what a different Israeli society could look like as a result of that. So if my understanding is correct, uh, the participants' experience of youth encounter program has really merged into and become part of their holistic coming-of-age experience. And this experience was weaved together with their experience of being a uh, Israeli or pa Palestinian citizen in this country. 
So how did this ethno-national identity play into the big picture? The big picture of the program. Yeah, the big picture of the program and the big picture of how they make positive change of the society. Well, I think part of it has to do with、uh, again this difference in the two organizations in how they allowed for or enabled the created a space where participants could see. Their identity as Jews, as Palestinians, as part of as citizens of the same country in different ways.、Um, so, among the again Sadaka Raout participants in particular,、um, I, th- you know, I think it really shaped、um, the identity of participants in the sense of seeing themselves as agents, potential agents of change in Israeli society. And seeing their identity not so much necessarily as part of Jewish society in Israel or Palestinian society in Israel, but more as、um, a group of individuals who are committed to creating, a, you know, a, a better,、uh, more peaceful, more just society.、Um, I think Peace Child a little bit more again because of its structure、uh, in particular. Um, because maybe、uh, also it didn't deal very much with、um, systemic issues in Israeli society, with power issues,、um, especially the power dynamic between Jews and Palestinians.、Um, I, f- my sense from my interviews with participants was much more that they, their identities remained kind of、uh, more congruent or in step with. The ethno-national stories that are told on among both Jews and Palestinians in Israel,、um, and、uh, in a sense, less transformative in that respect.、Um, I think、uh, how it shapes ethno-national identity in a, a larger sense—it's、uh, a little bit hard to speak to this. I think you know one of the things that I try to emphasize in the book is that. These stories,、uh, these stories about these master narratives in Jewish and Palestinian society, are so prevalent in, you know, especially among、uh, Jews in Jewish society. The discourse is constant,、um, and there are a number of scholars who write about this, about how this, you know, these narratives are used in ways that ultimately end up perpetuating the conflict、um, and maintaining this. This ethos of conflict, excuse me, is what it's referred to,、um, uh, because uh, you know, and, and because it's disseminated in in schools and what students learn in their history textbooks and what the media tells us, and the fact that、um, from a very young age,、uh, Jewish kids in Israel are encouraged to go to the army and to be combat soldiers, and you know, it's a very militaristic society, and all of this is bound up in these stories. And、uh, narratives that are told at a societal level,、um, but I think you know to the degree that there's some change in those narratives at an individual level, it's reflective of the possibility of these encounter programs,、um, no matter how small the narrative changes,、uh, to shift the beliefs of participants to some degree,、um, and the fact that these narratives the participants told. Um, were 
told to me, you know, 5, 10, 20, sometimes 25 years after they participated in these programs and their own narratives still reflected that transformation to me is an indication of how powerful these programs can be, even in just a small way, but in a really important way uh, in changing how participants look at Israeli society and the potential for change and how we need to understand the relationship between uh, Jews and Palestinians or Israelis and Palestinians. So the program really sowed the seeds for social change. I think so, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so assumingly I'm a peace educator either in or out of the States. What will you say are the um, key takeaway points of the book for peace educators? Well, um, I think the most important takeaway from this book is keep on doing the work. <laughs> um, you know, there are a, a lot of differences between Peace Child and Sedaka Raut in the way that they shape participants, but really the overarching conclusion that I have come to is that this kind of work is necessary and it is very worthwhile. So um, in a sense, maybe it's not so much uh, a takeaway for the peace educators so much as the organizations and agencies that are funding them. Um, keep putting resources into this because I think it is really necessary. To make it. <laughs> um, but aside from Yeah, they are also the stakeholders of this entire process. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. From government agencies to NGOs to foundations. Um, so, so that's a really important uh, takeaway. Um, beyond that, I think there's a lot that we can learn about how we engage in programming thought in a thoughtful way that really embodies the values that we you know, the mission or the, the, the goals of the organization. So um, as I said, I think Sadaka Raut was much more successful at this than Peace Child in terms of embodying this vision, uh, this alternative that could, in a sense, be a model to participants of what they would like society to look like. Um, so as a peace educator, you know, thinking about that, thinking about who is in charge of the programs, who is facilitating these encounters, um, who is funding these programs? Are you looking for funding from diverse sources or is the funding all coming from one, you know, one set of stakeholders who might have their own value system and agenda? Um, those things, I think, all really matter for the kind of transformation you might see among individuals. Um, and beyond that, you know, I think one thing that I didn't really touch on too much in our discussion, although I mentioned it in relation to Arif, is to be mindful of how the work that is done as a, you know, within peace education is part of a diversity of experiences that participants have. Um, so, you know, Jewish and Palestinian participants in Peace Child and Sadaqa programs were not shaped the same way. The narratives that they told later on were not the same because they face very different kinds of experiences outside of peace education, the, you know, the Sadaqa and Peace Child programs. Um, and, you know, I think uh, for 
peace education more generally, this is also something important to keep in mind uh, in remembering that individuals may not be transformed in the same way and that in order to deepen the impact um, or potentially uh, broaden the impact, uh, it's necessary to think about how your approach kind of fits in with um, what's happening in Israeli society at large, or not necessarily Israeli society, I suppose, so here in the United States, um, but what's happening more broadly in the socio-political context uh, and how that might um, shape what's happening to participants uh, in different ways and at different times. Yeah, there are indeed so many things to think about. And Karen, we have taken so much time from you. So uh, before I wrap up our conversation, I have two last questions for you. The first question is, I really want to know, since we have uh, talked so much about how you came to this field and to this topic, I really want to know what this book means to you. Uh, in addition to, you know, this is part of your job, of course, but what this book means to you as, um, as, a as a person with dual citizenship from the States and Israel. And the, the last question is, I hope you can share, share with us, um, what is your current project? Is it still Related to this uh, farmer project, or are you working on something else? Oh, wow. So those are two great questions. I'm going to answer the second one first. Uh, it's a little easier for me to uh, respond to. Um, so I am doing some work now that is a continuation of the research that is the basis of this book. Uh, over the last few years, I've continued to um, be involved with Sedaka Reut, so Peace Child Israel no longer is an active organization, but Sadaka Reut is. And uh, with some of the staff in Sadaka Reut a few years ago, we started talking about some additional questions um, they would like to understand or learn about. Um, and so I've been doing some more work, some additional interviews uh, with participants there to really dig more deeply into what specific elements of the programmatic approach of what happens in Sadaqarat programs um, is motivating participants to engage in additional social change endeavors. Um, so this is kind of trying to open up that black box even more than I was able to do in this research that in the book. Uh, so that's one project. Uh, another project that is just kind of getting underway um, and it's possible this is also will partly be with Sadaqirat, though I'm not totally sure yet, is I'm um, working on uh, doing some work with some uh, organizations in Israel and Israel Palestine, and also in Palestine uh, that are working together actually um, to engage in some like nonviolent direct action against the Israeli occupation. Um, and so I'm just starting some work with them around questions related to uh, what it means to be organizations that are working together in partnership, uh, Jewish-Palestinian partnership, uh, in coalitions. Um, and this is also a question that, you know, is uh, – I'm not totally sure um, will be continued with Sadaqa Ra'ut specifically, but I'm hoping that – 
uh, it, I'm hoping so. So I'll be back in Israel this in the next couple of months doing some additional work there. Um, so that's the research that I'm working on that's, you know, kind of most relevant to this, uh, to the book uh, and the research study. And I'm also, you know, engaged in a number of other projects that are a little more distant from the focus of uh, youth encounter programs in Israel. Um, so the second project also a book launch project? Um, it's a case study that's part of a bigger project I'm involved with that's looking at how nonviolent social movements scale up the impact of their work. Um, so that project as a whole is probably a book length project. I'm not sure if this, um, this, this case study looking at the coalition, the Jewish Palestinian coalitions will itself be a book length study. Um, but as I said, it's also just getting underway. So, um, it's a little hard but, to say. But still, if you have this new book coming out, we should invite you to our new book series to talk about your new book again. And we look forward. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to. I really appreciated the opportunity to speak with you today. Yeah, so the last question is about the meaning of this book for you. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. The meaning of this book for me. Um, boy, that's a tough question, Pangpei. <laughs> I mean, you know, I look at this book, I'm looking at, at it now in front of me, and I think to myself, um, you know, how many years were in, involved in, in, in conceptualizing and doing the work that led me to ask these questions and, you know, getting to the point of asking them with Sadaka Reut and Peace Child Israel, um, and then, um, and then writing the book itself. Um, so, so from a personal perspective, I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a project that would be more meaningful. Um, it's been, uh, really, uh, a big part of my life for the last, I, I don't even know how many years at this point. Um, but I think also, you know, it's, it's not just this project, you know, since I, I talked a little bit about my childhood and my background and so forth and, you know, a commitment to this kind of work, um, and, you know, which I continue to be involved with outside of my research has really been part of who I am for a really long time. And I hope that in some small way, this book, um, for the people who read it, for the people who hear this podcast, um, for people who read some of the other things I've written based on this research, uh, that it can also contribute in some way to, um, you know, creating a more just and peaceful Israeli society. Yeah, I hope so. I really feel this is a very inspiring, very meaningful book after reading it. And I really love how you integrate the multiple perspectives into the book. And well, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today to talk about such a wonderful book, Karen. We, we really enjoy to have you here and um, hope 
uh, we hope you have continue, uh, continuous successful career in peace building and peace education conflict resolution, and hope to see you again, talk to you again in our new book series. All right, thank you so much, Pangfei. I really enjoyed speaking with you this morning. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank、you